0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you will, to the book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14. And we'll begin reading in verse 12. And we'll be reading through verse 24. And I'll be reading on the New King James Version, as is my custom. John fourteen twelve through 24, God's Word declares, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also, and that day you will know that I am in my father, and you and me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Well, we have been studying through the book of Jude. We are working our way through some important theological words that are being used here. We are in Jude, verse 2. There's only one chapter. You might say, is it going to take you a whole year to get through this? Very possibly. Uh, But I'll try not to make it a whole year to get through one chapter. We come to the third theological word of Jude, verse 2. And that is one that we really like a lot. Um, After mercy, peace, we find love. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you is the... uh, desire of Jude toward his readers. We spent six weeks trying to decide if we were among the, re- the ones that qualify as being the recipients of this letter based upon verse 1. Are we the ones who, as verse 1 says, are the called, the sanctified, and the preserved? Um, do those describe us? Have we responded to the call of God to salvation? Are we engaged with God in the process of sanctification being set apart to God And are we confident and responsive to the preservation work of God in our life to keep that which he has begun in us? We then looked once we found out that, yes, um, for the believer today, we can still use those terms to describe ourselves, providing we are responding to God. And that was the foundation of that. And each time we have looked at the fact that God initiates, we respond. We've then looked at mercy, peace, and now love, and using that same formula, God initiates and we are dependent upon God's mercy, yet we know that God's mercy calls us to be merciful. That bless are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And so to have these things multiplied in our lives is what we're really focusing on. Yes, every believer should have mercy, peace, and love in their life, and we already recognize it. The question is, how do we get it multiplied in us? How do we get it growing and expanding, not just in small increments of addition, but in large increments of multiplication? And what we have found is that much like the first three theological words, these three require something of us. That Bible makes it very clear that while God is ready to show mercy to all, he doesn't show mercy to all. There's capacity enough there, but it is waiting dependently upon you to respond. God says, I want to show you mercy, but to receive that mercy, you're going to have to be repentant. You're going to have to um, follow after me. You're going to have to demonstrate some things. Even for the Christian who has trusted in Christ, for mercy to be multiplied in your life requires something of you. We've looked at that. We've looked at peace and what it requires of you. God makes it very clear that yes, yes, he is the prince of peace. He is the one who will bring peace, the, that your relation with God will now be one that is no longer one of enmity, of being at war with God, but you're at peace with God. And once you're at peace with God, we can now have the peace of God in our life. But it requires something of us. Not that we are producing it in us, but we are submitting ourselves to God, and then He multiplies it in us. But we have to respond by faith, to his instructions in these matters. When we come to love, the definition that we use for love most often is an unconditional commitment to another. And that is a pretty strong definition of love. But once we use that word unconditional, you say, Pastor, you can't use your formula tonight, today. So I don't know why I think it's night. Um, it's because my wife isn't here, and so I can't sleep when she's not there. I don't know. So... Um, Pray for me. i got four more days. We'll get through it. Pastor, how can you formula work? God's love is unconditional. Well, guess what? For it to be multiplied to you is not. Again, God has shown mercy to the world. He has provided peace for the world if... He has supplied sufficiently for all through Jesus Christ. And what we find about the love of God is similar. He has initiated, he has demonstrated, he has it, and he has shown it to all. But how do we receive it? How do we benefit from his love for the world? For it's obvious that while God loves the world, not all the world is saved. And so what is this unconditional commitment of God? And how, once we have received salvation, do we get the love of God multiplied in our life? We want to see it increasing many times. And so let's do a quick review. And and again, we have so much content in Scripture that I could go to. Uh, I'm going to go to what you're very familiar with because I want to move very quickly. Um, this morning, because I think you have the love of God pretty well in hand, because it has been emphatically taught uh, probably in the last, uh, well, at least since the 60s, when the God is Love movement was really in full bloom in in the 70s. Um, I know that many of you weren't alive then, (laughs) but it has been emphasized to a degree that a lot of people only know that God is love, and they don't know anything else about God. And you're still encountering that today. Oh, how can a loving God do this? How can a loving God allow this? How can a loving God? And whenever you encounter that, the foundation of that is the God is only love, which came out of the 60s and 70s. And if you want to know the foundation of where that that verbiage comes from, it is in our national religious psyche that has been passed down. And that's where you're picking that up from. Well, how can a loving God? Well, he's not just loving, but he is loving. And so we're going to look at some familiar passages to you, I hope, and we're going to examine how love of God is expressed and initiated, uh, and its uh, pervisity that it is for all men. And so we are going to look at those. Of course, immediately in your mind, you're going to be going to several books of the Bible. Uh, hopefully, you've already thought of one verse, John three sixteen. Hopefully, that is dawned upon you when we start talking about the love of God. It should come immediately to you. And we're going to come to John 3 as well earlier, um, verse 11 and following. But we're going to look at the love of God there and how it is expressed for all men. And then, of course, 1 John talks a lot about the love of God. We're going to go there in a little while. Uh, But we're also going to see perhaps some things that you're not quite as Adept at, understanding about the love of God. So let's go to John 3.16 and spend a little time there. Uh, we're actually going to back up, as I said, and start in some early verses. If you've got your Bible there, turn to John chapter 3. We're going to spend some time in John, Romans, 1 John, back to John, Deuteronomy. So we're going to be all over the place. But uh, we'll start off in John 3. Before we get into it too much far, let's go Lord in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for this time to study your word. We pray you might open up our minds. And help us to understand, illuminate us, uh, that we might not be in the dark, for we want to be children of light. Open up our hearts, that we might not be hard and resistant against your truth, but accepting of it. And Lord, we do pray for discernment, that we might uh, examine your word, realize its authority, and consider our ways and how we might better implement your commands in our lives this week than last. And again, as always, we pray that your spirit might take control even now, that this might be uh, free from error and opinion and and, uh, worldliness, that it might be your truth this morning in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John chapter 3, we're very familiar with verse 16, um, but we want to back up and really look at the whole context. This, of course, is Nicodemus coming and uh, asking Jesus about how do I see God? How do I know God? How can I come to God? And he really uh, comes into it in a backwards way, saying, well, we know you're from God because no one could do what you're doing without that knowledge. Uh, and Jesus uh, quickly cuts to the chase and says, this is where we have the phrase coined, you must be born again. Um Christ says that to Nicodemus, a religious leader who Christ expected to have a good handle on spiritual truth. But Nicodemus couldn't get out of the physical realm and into the spiritual realm. That being born again isn't about going back in your mother's womb. It is about being spiritually born. You have already been physically born. Let's make sure that you now have a spiritual life. You have physical life you receive from your parents. um, But do you have spiritual life? Well, you have to receive that from your spiritual parent. That is from God, your creator. And it says, uh, verse 11 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you of earthly things you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. That is the full context of Christ's words. Couched within there is John 3.16 that we're so familiar with. But here he is confronting not the world. He's not sharing John 3.16 out there at the football stadium with a big sign. Um, He is not doing that uh, even in a public setting. This is a private conversation with a religious leader of the day. And he's having to explain to this man who is well trained in the scriptures of their day, which would have been the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Um, And he's having to explain to this man the love of God. And here within this conversation, a very private conversation between Christ and Nicodemus, we have him using the example that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. That is, that you have to look and live. At that occasion, um, Israel was in disobedience. God sent serpents. The serpents were killing people through their through their venom, and. Uh, They cried out to the Lord. God says, take your staff. Whoever looks will live. All you have to do is look. Not really a lot involved there, but you had to believe enough to look upon this one place of deliverance. There was no other place of deliverance. And so Christ recounts that event, one that Nicodemus was very familiar with, had to be a religious leader of the day, one of the primary teachers in Jerusalem. And here Christ confronts him with that story and he says, listen, just as Israel had to look there to live, so you must look upon the Son. You must believe that now there is one who is going to be lifted up to die. That all who believe would be saved. Not just of Israel, but of the world. And the whosoever here is isn't whosoever is elect, it is for Christ loved the world. God loved the world that he gave his son that whoever. And this is is expanding to the mind of a person like Nicodemus who has been watching Christ and he has had several encounters with Gentiles um, and Samaritans and people like that that the Jews wouldn't have had anything to deal with. But Christ was willing to minister there because God so loved the world. What does that, how's that love express? He sent his son to die for them. Whether they accept that love or not wasn't relevant. Thus, his love is unconditional. You didn't have to do anything to earn that. God loved you enough to send his son to die for you. You did nothing to deserve it. You can't earn that kind of love. He simply chose to extend that to the whole world and he expressed that love um, by sending his son. It's a blanket expression of the love of God for everyone. So God loves you. He's already proven it. He's already demonstrated his love. And this is what Romans 5.8 says. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So yes, his love is unconditional. Its initiation is global. It is for all men. It is for all time. It is from sea to shining sea. It is for all peoples, All tongues, all nations, all genders, it is for all, whoever believes. And tucked in this verse is certainly an expression of God's love and how it has been shown, but there's also an expectation of how do I become the recipient of that? How do I become the benefactor, personally, individually, of God's universal love? That God loved every man. How do you benefit from? How do you acquire its benefits? Well, John 3.16 says you have to believe. Not just that he existed and that, oh yeah, I believe that God existed, that Jesus died and rose again. That's really not in the fullness of what Christ is saying here. And he's going to bring that out and draw that out. And that's why it's important you read the next verses. To understand what Jesus Christ is really meaning when he says, believe in me. And he spells it out that there is um, a desire to walk in the light, to uh, expose evil deeds and then obey the truth and live in obedience to God. That is the evidence of true belief. Not just mental agreement that these things happened historically, um, but life-changing commitment of yourself to God. Which sounds like something, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like the definition of love? Unconditional commitment to another. No matter what, I'm committed. And this takes us very quickly to 1 John. And let's go there, First John chapter four. And again, we could read pretty much most all of First John in this respect. Uh, and we're going to spend a lot of time there next week when we talk about the lateral expression of the love of God. But uh, let's look at First John four, beginning verse seven, again, hopefully verses that are very familiar to you concepts that are familiar. And if not, they need to become familiar to you. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us. That word manifest is shown. This is how God showed us his love. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So what is this propitiation? It says, verse 14, if we go a little bit farther. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent the son as savior of the world. And so he is there to deliver us, to pay the price for our sin. He became sin for us. This is his expression of love. He sacrificed himself for all men. That anyone who will trust in him can receive the benefits of that, which according to this is life. That you will receive life. You might live through him. This is how God showed his love. He sacrificed himself for you. And that is the initiation of being in the love of God. Is that first I need to accept what He has done for me that I could not do for myself. I need to acknowledge that my deeds are evil all the day long. His light of truth will expose that, and I allow that to happen. I humble myself before Him and receive His offer. But as any gift given, It needs to be opened and it needs to be accepted. And we use this illustration extensively that just because I pay for a gift, wrap the gift, and put it on the table in front of you has not made it yours yet. You have not benefited from it at all. As long as it stays in the wrapper, in the box, unopened and unreceived, it means nothing to you no matter how lovingly it was purchased or made or, or selected, no matter how carefully it was wrapped, no matter how lovingly it was presented to you, um, if you don't accept a gift, it does you no good. If it just sits on the table, fully wrapped, paid for, and quote-unquote yours, but you don't open it, it's of no value. And so the love of God is unconditional, it has been granted, It has been shown to all men, it has been manifested. Christ died for all of you, every one of us. The difference between a believer, a Christian, and someone who is not a Christian, is a Christian has simply said, woohoo, I got a gift and I'm going to open it. Rip that thing open, tear that box apart, and make that mine. I don't call that work. Do you call that work? I've never called that work opening a present and taking it. The person who did the work was a person who labored to either get money or to make whatever it is he's given you. Wrap it. They've done all the work. I'm just opening it up and saying, Yahoo! It's mine. The difference between a believer and a non-believer, a Christian and non-Christian is simply one has accepted a gift and the other one left it sitting on the table and said, eh, not interested. So this is the love of God. How was it shown? It was shown by sending His Son to die for all men. Not just a few, not just some that He loved ahead of time or chose ahead of time. He chose them and then loved those that He chose. No. He died for all men. Our Calvinists would take these kinds of passages and insert words that don't belong there, concepts that aren't there, principles that aren't there, and say, well, he died for all kinds of men because all kinds of men, uh, there are elect among all kinds of men. Shame on them! Any child reading these verses know exactly what they say. They mean that God has demonstrated his love towards sinners, not towards elect towards sinners. That whoever, whosoever, that any who believe can be saved. This is the work of God's love. And frankly, a Calvinistic view of this passage and others like it, these passages and others like them, um, denies the fact that God is love. They make him a very unloving God. For here is a God who could save all and chooses not to. If he can cause, force you to overcome your will and overcome your heart and redeem you before belief, that's what they teach, then if he is capable of doing that and overcoming the will of man and causing you to believe, then it is his fault that Some don't believe, and that makes them very unloving. But the fact is is that God has made you humanity in his image, and among the responsibilities of image-bearing is that you carry authority over yourself. You have to answer for you. Not your parents, not your teachers, not your pastor. You have to answer for you. Even God himself. Because he created and established that principle in the Garden of Eden before there was even sin, he gave you that kind of authority, and it's evident. Read Genesis. What does it say? The earth is yours. Dress it. Keep it. You have authority over it. Well, among the things he had authority over in the earth was himself. This is what makes us in the image of God is authority. And God establishes a principle, he's not going to break it. Aren't you glad? And thus, God offers it to all men, genuinely. Not just to a few men, but he offers it to all of you. Genuinely offers it. He says, I sent my son to die for anyone who would accept it, and everyone who will accept it. This is the extent of the love of God. And for Nicodemus, this would blow his mind. God loved the whole world? I thought he only loved Israel. Why would he think that? Well, because Deuteronomy 7 says so. And Christ is just expanding his whole concept of the love of God. Let's go to Deuteronomy 7. Since I brought that up, let's go there. We're going to find something out about the love of God. Because that's how you initiate the love of God. You have to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. But that's not all that Jude says. Jude has already established that you're a believer in verse 1. In verse 2, he wants the love of God in your life to be multiplied. So, verse 1 establishes that you are a Christian because you were the called. God called you to salvation. Your response is, okay, I'll take it. God calls you to be separate, to, to stand out, to be different than the world, to walk by faith and to walk in the spirit and in truth, to live righteously and justly in an ungodly world, and you are being sanctified. You're becoming more and more holy. He has made you holy, and yet your experience is still working in that direction. And then the preservation. We know we have an eternity established for us, and we wait for that kingdom. So verse 1 already established the initiation of your relationship with God. That's already there. Now, as a believer, Jude says, I want your love, your, your discovery and experience and knowledge and reception of the love of God to be multiplied. Which means that that wasn't the end all of God's love towards you. It was just the beginning. But we kind of sit back and think, well, God loved me and saved me. Well, he wants to do a lot more than that. I mean, that's huge. That's wonderful. Um, No doubt about it. And I don't want to use any verbiage here that makes you think less of your salvation. (laughs) I don't want to do that. But there's more. And if you're stuck only here, well, the Bible says maybe you are spinning your wheels in something that isn't really the love of God. Maybe it's something, just religious activity, or religious, you know, you're banking on a prayer, or uh, dunking in a water tank, or something like that. And so there's got to be a future, there's got to be a multiplication of the love of God in your life if there's the real deal happening. And this has been something that God has said consistently through his word, that he not only loved you in the past, God so loved, that's past, that he loves you in the present, but he will love you. So there is what God has already done for me. He died for me. So he loved me then. Does he love me now? Well, sure. How do you know that? Well, he called you. He's sanctifying you. He's preserving you. So you know that that's present. And some of the other blessings we're going to see here today. But he's also going to future love you. Let's look at it. Deuteronomy 7. Just so you know, this isn't just a New Testament concept. It is in the Old Testament. It is offered to Israel. And and we're going to see the same principles of Deuteronomy 7 uh, expounded for us in John chapter 14 that we read earlier this morning. We're going to get to as our main text. I'm still in my introduction. Deuteronomy 7. Look at verse, oh, let's see. Let's start with verse 6. For you are a holy people, that's sanctified, the word sanctified, set apart, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, that's called, to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Do you notice this is a limited group? This is Nicodemus' understanding of the love of God. It is only for Israel. We're the chosen. We're the special treasure. We're the only ones. The other nations aren't it. Just us. And then Christ comes and says, um, God loved the world. He's got a bigger plan than that. But let's just look at his relationship with Israel. Verse 7, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, and he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with Him. Who hates him, he will repay him to his face. Therefore, he shall keep the commandments, the statutes, the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Now, very quickly, God has loved you. He already showed it. How did He show it historically? Well, God loves you, and here's the fact that God loves you. This is Moses talking to Israel. This is the second giving of law, Deuteronomy, the the, the second time around. So he's at the end of his life. They pretty much have finished up 40 years in the wilderness. He's trying to rehearse all of this with them before they go in, before he leaves and they go in the promised land. He's rehearsing it all with them again, the whole history. So he's talking to a new generation here. And he says, the Lord loves you. How does he love you? Well, he saved you. He saved you. And we can say, yes, God loves me, he saved me. But guess what? It doesn't end there. That's where it began, but it does not end there. He chose to love you. He chose to deliver you and to redeem you, to get you, buy you out of Egypt. And you crossed over the the Red Sea on dry ground. You have been benefited from manna, from quail, from water out of rocks. Um, You have been taken care of. Your shoes haven't worn out. Your clothing hasn't dropped a stitch. Um, None of it. God has cared for you all this time. He has redeemed you. He has saved you. But that's not it. That's not the end. That was his first demonstration Now, let's keep reading. Verse 12. Then it shall come to pass. Now we're going to the future. Because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you he will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain, your new wine, your oil, the increase of your cattle and offspring of your flock and the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you. He shall be, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. And he goes on to describe all this great stuff. What did he just describe? The love of God will be multiplied to you. He saves you from slavery. For the Christian, that means Christ saves us from being slaves to sin. But he wants you not just to be delivered people that are wandering in the wilderness. That's not his design. So he loved you, past tense, loves you and saves you today, died for you then, saves you today, but he has a future love for you. He will love you. He wants to bless you. That is the fullness of the love of God. Now, this is the Old Testament talking to Israel. Anything like that in the New Testament? Comparable to that? I think so. In John chapter 14, Jesus uses almost the same language. In John chapter 14, the text that we read uh, earlier in the service, I know this is a lot of turning in compared to what I usually do, but it's just required when we do word studies like this. John chapter 14, I'm not going to read some of the earlier passages that we read, but let's uh, pick up in verse 21 so I can get going here. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest or show myself to him. Do you get the picture there? You already have received the love of God. You've already been saved. You've already received the commandments. It says you have my commandments and you keep them. Okay, what's going to happen now? Well, the Father's going to love you in the future. He's going to bless you even more. So when Jude says, I want the love of God multiplied to you, he means it. I want you more than just to be barely saved. I don't want you just to get a little fire insurance to get out of hell. And then that's it. I have a lot more in store for you. I have more love I want to show to you. But just like being a benefactor of the love of God in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection ascension, where we get saved... We have to apply the blood to the doorposts and lintels in Israel. our life, we have to apply that to ourselves. Jesus died for me. I accept that. Just as there is a qualifier that you had to respond to his love to be benefited by it, so now his future love, his multiplied love, requires something of you, that you love him and keep his commandments. Take my commandments, do them, Demonstrate some love for me responsively and the Father will love you. I will love you. Well, what does that love look like? Well, in John chapter 14, it looks like this. Ask me whatever you want in my name and I'll do it for you. In Deuteronomy 7... Moses goes through and says, if you keep his commandments, here's what God's going to get. I mean, you're going to have babies running all over the place. I guess you guys are doing a great job. Um, You're going to have fruitful harvests. Your enemies are not going to ever get victory over you. You're going to have all of these blessings in the land. God has a future for you. That's the expression of his will of you. I want to multiply my love to you. Not by saving you over and over again, but by saving you and then... Blessing you upon blessing, upon blessing. And each level of that blessing is dependent to a degree upon, will you love me and keep my commandments? Will you love me and keep my commandments? Will you love me and keep my commandments? What is one of the last questions Christ asked of Peter? Peter, do you love me? I want to bless your life. Do you love me? Do you love me more than... Everyone else or anything else? Am I the first love of your life? And Peter gives him a wishy-washy answer. Jesus says, well, I'll take it. uh, It's not really what I'm asking you, um, but you're not quite there yet, and you'll get there. But I'll take what you've got for today. With an expectation that your love for him will grow to the point that you do love him more than anything else. Mature Christianity, what does it look like? It looks like someone that hates everything and everybody except for God. Because they love God so much, they go, man, they don't love their family very much. A, they don't love eating very much. They don't love things very much. No. Because their love of God consumes them. They want to please God, serve God. with All that they are, all that they have all the time. That's a mature faith. And that kind of faith, God blesses with a future beyond our imagination and with a prayer life that is potent. Christ says, ask in my name, glorify my Father, and I'll give it to you. Now, once you have that kind of love, though, for God, that supersedes your love for any person on earth, spouse, child, mother, father. Once you have a love for God that supersedes any activity or any material thing on earth, any experience on earth, once you have that kind of love, your prayer life changes dramatically. And so the qualifier changes your praying. So if you're saying, well, I've been praying for To get wealthy and I want three houses and I want vacations and I want, want, well, that's what you love. And you love those more than God and your prayers reveal that. And so you haven't met the qualification of the promise. You haven't asked in such a manner because you haven't matured in your love to realize, why am I asking for that stuff? I think it's fascinating when we pray, and I still catch myself doing I think I caught myself this morning a little bit doing that, too. um, When we hear about our brethren in other lands who are undergoing persecution, that we ask it to go away. Are we that ignorant of the Bible? I'm pretty sure the Bible says that if you love God, the world will hate you, and what they did to Jesus, they'll do to you. I'm pretty sure the world persecuted Jesus. The religious world, the Roman world, all of them. Yet we pray that we won't be persecuted. What is that? What are you praying for exactly there? Are you praying that we all become lukewarm? So we look like the world, taste like the world, sound like the world, dress like the world, so that the world gets along with us? Is, why are you praying like that? You know, this pastor was in the Middle East and got arrested. He went back, I think it was Iran. And, uh, oh, we were all, all the radio stations, oh, we got to pray for his release, pray for his release, pray for his release. Why? Because we are sure that Christians should never suffer, even though the Bible says clearly that that's the greatest evidence that you are living your faith, is that the world hates you. But we are praying that the world loves us. And we think that that's the evidence that God loves us when we get along with the world and the world gets along with us. That's how immature our love of God is. That's how immature our faith is. So before you start claiming this verse that says, I can ask anything of Jesus and he'll give it to you. Yes, providing you love him and keep his commandments. And when that's the condition of your heart and mind, your prayers change radically. You no longer pray for persecution to go away. You pray, Lord, help our brethren to stand and shine like bright lights in all that darkness that they've been tossed into. Help them to endure. Not help it go away. Help them to endure it. Strengthen them. It's time that we understood That we don't love this world and we don't love the things of this world, the philosophies of this world, and there should be conflict. Not that we go out there and cause conflict, but it should naturally occur as we live out the Christian life. And your prayers should be indicative of that. And once our prayers start to show that kind of maturity, Christ says, I'll give you whatever you ask for. Do it in my name. To glorify the Son, to glorify the Father, and I'll give it to you. This is the future God has in store for you, but it is conditioned on he who loves me, keeps my commandments, I will show myself to him. And so if you want the love of God multiplied in your life from everything I can tell in Scripture, the way that happens is when we love God and keep his commandments. And don't sit there and be disobedient to God and then wonder why you don't feel his love or that he hasn't blessed you. Well, he's waiting. He wants to. He's declared that. He has bought and paid for this gift as well of a blessed life. And he's waiting for you to claim it by obeying his word. There's another facet of multiplying the love of God in us that I want to explore. So first of all, you want the love of God multiplied, you're going to have to love him keep his commandments. It was true for Israel in Deuteronomy 7. It's true for the church in John, Jesus' word in John 14 and we have it expressed in other passages as well in the New Testament. But there's another facet of the love of God, another one that we don't really like, but it's an important one, and so I'm going to go there. And I have to use a smile to do it, because we don't smile when this happens, but we should be. So we'll go to Hebrews, if you will. We don't enjoy doing it, and we don't enjoy receiving it, but we know it is the most loving act of a parent. Hebrews chapter 12. Are you ready for this? Verse 5. Of course, Hebrews 12 follows Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, by faith, these people did all these things, and we think that they had wonderful lives and had no problems ever. Um, we are told in Hebrews 12.1, We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us hide at every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. The throne of God. All right. Verse 3, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. We want the love of God multiplied to you. So what's keeping that from happening? Well, verse 4 says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. You should be striving against sin. When you strive against sin, trying to be more godly, more Christlike, more righteous, here's what's going to happen. The world is going to want to shed your blood. That's what it says. Just as they shed Christ's blood, the world's going to hate you. But there's another facet. There's a second facet here that I want to investigate in verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves... He chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we pay them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, whom the Lord loves, it says there in Proverbs, it's quoted here in Hebrews, for whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That word chastening is disciplining. So, when I see parents that are unwilling to discipline their children, I find that they are very selfish parents and short-sighted and not very loving. I would conclude that they love themselves more than their kids. Because disciplining children is hard work, it's not fun, but if you really understood human nature, you would understand it is absolutely necessary that your children be disciplined. Because guess what? When they leave your house, the world is not there to let them do whatever they want, however they want, whenever they want, and, not, and everything come to them free of charge. Usually you live like that, you end up in jail, or dead, or homeless, then dead, or in jail. So a loving parent is a parent, the Bible says, that will discipline or chasten their child. Now I've raised a few, some of them pretty stubborn. Almost as stubborn as me, but not quite. Okay, I think I won the war. I got two or three of them here. Two of them, where's Julie? Oh, she must be in the nursery. Okay. Not fun. Not something I wake up and oh, I can't wait to really discipline my kids today. Wonder how many spankings I get to hand out today. How much blessings I can remove from them. No parent gets up in the morning with those thoughts. In fact, most parents, when confronted with the realization that they have to discipline, them, go, ugh. Oh. And you know what's going through your mind whenever a parent goes, ugh, oh, is this is so much work. I don't want to do this. Why can't this kid just be good? And then I can just be a nice guy. That's what a parent's thinking when they're going, ugh, here I go, getting up. I have to go correct this child. Why? Because their future is more important to me than their present. Right now, if I let this sin, this, this rebellion, this lie, this wickedness go, if I let this go unrebuked, uncorrected, unpunished, I'm setting them up for failure in life because it will just mushroom in their life and that rebellion will just escalate all the way through their life and they will have rebellion towards every authority in their life and it begins at home and that's why we're seeing it on a mammoth scale in the community at large is because our parents don't love their kids enough to secure their future by disciplining them as children. Because we love ourselves too much. We are the most selfish generation on the planet um, in in the history of this nation, at least. We have convinced ourselves that we are loving by being permissive. Thanks largely to the lady that, again, from... This is in our national psyche that was born out of the 60s um, and said Dr. Spock and others that told us all this thing. That permissiveness is how you show love. Oh, no. They They have misunderstood blessing as permissiveness. God shows his love by blessing his children, not by being permissive with them. And because he wants to bless you, he blesses you because you love him and keep his commandments. When you don't keep his commandments and sin is there, he loves you enough to correct you so that you can receive the blessings genuinely, rightly, in the future. So how does God multiply his love towards you? By not letting you go and sin without punishment. Now, since our future is secure, since you have eternal life waiting for you in heaven, where is God going to discipline you? Not in the future. So when is he going to discipline you? Today. That's why we discipline our children while they're children. Because we have their future in our mind, a day when there won't be mom and dad to cover for them, you know, when they're finally 40 and move out. Um, whenever, <laughs> I'm just messing. Um, that never happened when I was a kid, so it was unheard of. Because a parent knows that they're not always going to be the parent of a child, but that child's going to become an adult, we recognize we must do this now. So what, how is God multiplying his love towards you now? Well, first of all, he's told you Love me, keep my commandments, and I will multiply my love to you by blessing you in ways beyond your imagination. But the fact is we don't always love him and we don't always keep his commandments. And so the other side of that same love that wants to bless is the hand that disciplines. It is not a different God. It is not a different side of God. It is the exact same love. The exact same love of a parent that wants to bless you and meet all of your needs by providing you a house and food and education, a and future that wants to set you up for the future is the exact same love that will correct you when you lie, when you curse, when you are disrespectful, when you don't obey and puts you into some form of punishment. That is the same love that is setting up your future with blessing. It is the exact same love. For they are both simultaneously wanting to deliver you to multiplied blessing. Because they know what will keep you from getting blessed is your sin, and so I'm going to tr- train you to eradicate it from your life. And every real father that loves his son will do that. Bible says so. And if they don't do it, it means your father doesn't really care about you. And you don't think children know this? They do. Inherently, they know this. It is something I believe that is in the conscience that God has placed there, that children know that they need boundaries. And when they don't get them, they act out. When they don't get consistent discipline, they just twirl out of control. And they are not happy, they are miserable. And everything they get away with just adds to their plight. Because everything they get away with is just more evidence they don't really care. In the subconscious, in the, in the conscience of a child, they know. They inherently, by God's grace, know that a parent who loves them disciplines them. Won't let them get away with everything. So what do we expect from God? The same hand that blesses is the same hand that disciplines. It says, I have to chasten you. Why did God send vipers to bite Israelites? Was it because he hated them? No. Because he had to discipline them so they can look at the... He, he said, I don't really want to destroy you all, so here it is. Here's a place of deliverance. Here's Moses. He's going to lift the serpent in the wilderness. You look at that and you'll live. I just need to discipline you. And over and over again, throughout Israel's history, we see God disciplining them as an act of love because they had wandered away. And the end result of that wandering away into disobedience and rebellion and sin is complete destruction. And God doesn't want that. No parent wants their child to go in and live miserably and be destroyed. I've interviewed a lot of parents, new parents, I've not found any that say, I hope my kid grows up and ends up in prison and, and miserable and dead by the time he's 30. I have not interviewed any new parents and heard that. Well, how do you keep a child from growing up rebellious, doing evil? Well, you do that by discipline. How does God keep you from missing all the blessings of your future? By discipline. And so the writer of Hebrews tells these people, Listen, you're at war with sin, but you're not alone in that battle. You have a heavenly parent that's going to come along and help you. That when you get caught in sin, they're going to make you miserable. They're going to make it hurt. They're not going to let you be happy in your sin. They're going to make you hurt in your sin. Why? So you're going to learn to get out of the sin. (laughs) That's how it works. When my kids sinned, I made it hurt. As they got older, that hurt changed. Well, no, you don't get to do this. You don't get to do that. You don't get to have this. You don't get to have that. The hurt changed. Instead of physical pain, it became mental anguish. On many levels. But the important thing is they understood that sin hurts. So i got to stop that. I lose out on blessing. I lose out on the favor of my Father, I've got to stop that. And this is what God does for us. And it is the exact same love with which he blesses us is what he chastens us with. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, listen, you've got to love God for that. Thank you, Lord, for making that sin hurt. <laughs> Maybe it'll sink in that i got to stop that. i got to get that out of my life. And the question is how much Is your sin going to cost you before you realize, oh, that's my fault that I'm being disciplined by God because of my sin. He loves me and is disciplining me, not because he's mean, but because he loves me and wants me to have a secure future. I've had plenty of people in my life, and I'm just trying to encourage my young parents here today, I've had family members, I have had church people, I have had lots of people harass me about my parenting, saying I'm too mean. How can you be so mean to your kids? The same individuals who about four or five years later go, "But you have the best kids. Did I take the time to back them up to a few years ago when you told me before I was too mean? You see, I wasn't mean. I just love my kids enough to do the hardest work there is as a parent, and that is discipline. It is the hardest work there is. Nobody appreciates it. Your children never thank you for it. Other people don't. Applaud you for it. That's why when I see you guys discipline your kids, I go, smack them again once for me. I mean, not hard, just this is pastors. <laughs> why? Because I know that you love your kids enough to do the hard, unthankful work. God loves you enough to do that same work. So when the writer of Jude says, let the love of God be multiplied to you, this isn't just blessing. He does want to bless you. But it's also discipline. Because blessing comes with obedience. Discipline comes with disobedience. And both are the same coin that is the love of God trying to secure your future. I will love you. And if you don't choose to be obedient, then I will train you in obedience by making your sin hurt so you will learn to love me and keep my commandments so that I can now show you the other side of that same love and bless you with spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And I will love you. This is the promise of God. Jude says, I want the love of God multiplied to you. And we're going to see the, the last facet of the multiplication of love next week. In a totally different facet of it. But uh, I want you to understand that this is the love of God. To bless you when you obey. And to chasten you, discipline you, when you are in rebellion. It's not different God, not a different part of God. It is the same love that does both. Let's pray. Lord God, we you thank you for your love for us. And I do thank you for the times that you discipline me. To make my sin hurt, that I might hate it even more. Lord, guard me from, through your word and your spirit from hating you for disciplining me, but rather to hate the cause, which is my sin. That I might turn from it and root rebellion and bitterness out of my life. Lord, we thank you for loving us, sending your son to die for us. That we might have this relationship with you Lord, we know that that's not a static thing, but a lively thing. You want a dynamic relationship. And Lord, we pray you might help us to be multiplied in your love. We know that requires something of us, just as receiving your salvation requires us to believe in you. Receiving the multitude of your love requires us to love you and keep your commandments. And Lord, we pray you might, as you've promised, to help us in that You've promised your Holy Spirit as our comforter and guide. We thank you for his work to convict us, to chasten us when we have lost our way, the way of blessing that you have chosen for us. Lord, keep us in your path by blessing obedience and by punishing sin. That we might have a future. Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.